times when we don't have the faith and the hope, we ask that you remind us and then that you make us move for you, for your name, for your glory, so that the world may know your love and your grace. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this place. We thank you for your son in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I do find it interesting how that we've sat ourselves today. It's very represent, of a, a representative of a poll I saw this week. Um, it showed all the places in America that are cheering for the Eagles today. And then all the places that are cheering for the Patriots. And it kind of looks like this section right here on the map. It's just the Patriots right here. And all the rest is the Eagles. It's kind of interesting how that <clears throat> worked out. Uh, my name is Joe Davis. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Life, and we're continuing our series on 2 Corinthians. But before we get to that, I want to tell you what makes our church great, you know? Raise your hand. And this is, I found this fascinating today. And if I wasn't, you know, such, so secure in my manhood, I'd be a little bit shaken. How many of you said to me today one of two things? Hey, you look tired, Pastor Joe, or Pastor Joe, are you sick? Raise your hand if you said that to me today. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. See what I'm talking about? I'm so thankful that you guys feel so free at Grace Life to criticize your pastor that way. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so great. And so it shows that, uh, you know, maybe I should wear a robe up here or something or one of those hats with the crosses that fold down from last week. Remember that? <clears throat> we're doing 2 Corinthians. Uh, this week we're on chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We're continuing with our series, and, and this week it's called Don't Mess With a Good Thing. The good thing about this week, last week, we, we did 18 verses, and it was a lot. But this week we're going to do only six. But it's probably uh, one of the key parts of 2 Corinthians. Because if you'll remember correctly, uh, the whole book of 2 Corinthians was written for two reasons. For Paul to defend himself as an apostle and to defend the authority of the gospel. So let's read our passage today in verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. I wish you'd be a little more direct there, don't you? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Something is really bothering Paul that he would write that harshly. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When he talked about cunning and deceitful and all those things in the first part, underhanded ways, he was talking about people who felt the need to come in and manipulate people's emotions, their intellect, into making, for a lack of a better, just a basic understanding, to have them make religious decisions. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about people who were taking the gospel and adjusting it so it could be, quote-unquote, more effective. So we like to look through three applications of every passage, right? We like to look at the history. 
What about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? Then we look at the theology. What about God? What did he do? Why and how did he do it? And then we look at the devotional. What about me? What about us? What are we supposed to do and why and how do we do it? So let's look at the history of the passage. Reminder of the two purposes once again. There were those who were trying to change the gospel. There were those who were trying to make the gospel more palatable to pagans. And some that were trying to make it more in line with Judaism, with temple worship. So there were two camps that were attacking the church at Corinth. Those who were saying, you don't need to be so exclusive. Jesus is a way, not the way. As a matter of fact, I've shared many times, there's a couple of really big churches in our town who have gone that direction. Jesus is a way and not the way. And then there are those who are saying, yes, the gospel's good, but you still have to do all the things that the temple says you're supposed to do. They were trying to make the message something easier to believe, something not as divisive. And this is one of the two reasons for, for 2 Corinthians. The first one is to defend Paul's authority. There were those, as we said last week, that were coming with letters of recommendation from bigwigs in Jerusalem saying, we have authority. And Paul says, I don't need a letter of recommendation. I have you as my letter of recommendation, what God has done in your heart, how he's transformed your lives. That shows my authority. And the other was to defend the gospel. Those are the two things that Paul is doing in this whole book. And so what Paul does is he addresses those who feel the need to adjust the gospel, to enhance it so they could be more effective. That's what he does in this particular passage. He says, we are not going to be like those who are cunning and deceitful. He doesn't mince words here at all. He says, those who are taking the message of grace and mercy without works, but through faith alone on the, on the power of God and not on the power of man, those who try to say man gets the glory for redemption, those people are deceitful. Those who say you can mix the gospel with paganism, uh, and we talked a little about what that meant. It was pretty intense stuff. It affected them in 1 Corinthians in a moral way. So he's defending his apostleship and defending the gospel. He's addressing those who feel the need to adjust it. And Paul defends where the power of the gospel lies. It's in God, not in people. As if someone's skills, someone's education, someone's godliness, someone's knowledge, someone's discipline would be the key to whether or not God could save a lost soul. He says, we don't come to you. In the passage, he says this. He says, We don't come to you proclaiming ourselves like we are the important focal point for you to get connected to Heavenly Dad. No, no. As a matter of fact, we are coming to you saying that Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves just serving you. So that's the history of what's going on. That was short and simple. The theology is very important today. Why the gospel works. You see, what happens is when we as men try to take the gospel and adjust it to fit our culture. What we're saying is we don't think what God did works. We have to add some man to it. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4 teaches us that we are actually spiritually blind until God gives eyes to see. The gospel, he says, is veiled. And so what I want you to understand is people by nature... Just people in nature, right? Naturally, people can't do a few things. First of all, they can't see the hopelessness of their spiritual condition. 
Sure, we can see that we have issues. We know that we're flawed, but I don't think we can really comprehend the depths of our sinful depravity on our own. So by nature, while we can see that we're not perfect, we don't really understand just how imperfect we are. Another thing people by nature can't do, and this is spelled out in Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 6, we can't hear or understand the message of grace on our own. Think about it. Grace means undeserved favor. Grace means that you are connected to Heavenly Dad, and it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what God does for you. That works against what humans want. Humans want to take credit for the good in our lives. We want to take credit for the fact that we are transformed and we are redeemed. We want to have a role in it. And so by human nature, we're not able to understand that we are hopeless and helpless unless God intervenes. That puts us in a bad spot of depending on others. The other thing people can't do by nature, natural human hearts are indifferent or maybe sometimes even hostile to the gospel. Sometimes even hard, oh, the gospel's fine. Or sometimes, I hate the gospel. By nature, that's how we respond. That's nah, all right. Or I can't stand it. By nature, our hearts are inclined to be in one of those camps. It is only when there is a supernatural intervention are these natural reactions to the gospel reversed. When we can finally see our hopelessness. When we can finally hear and understand, oh, it's by grace through faith, not by works, or else we'd be able to brag about it. There's no room for bragging in the gospel. And then our heart is moved from being indifferent or hostile to the gospel to, this is the most important message I've ever heard in my life. Matter of fact, he says in verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. It's the gospel that spiritually blind people can't see and spiritually deaf people can't here. Isn't it interesting that Paul is defending the gospel and one of the things he says is the gospel cannot be seen or heard without God's help. He doesn't say the gospel cannot be seen or heard unless you figure out a way to make it palatable. You need to make it relevant. You need to make it culturally acceptable. He says, no, no matter what you do, the gospel cannot be seen or heard without God's intervention. So let's talk about, we're continuing the theological, how God uses the gospel. I'm going to explain to you how and why the gospel works. First of all, God uses the church. See, this amazes me, guys, because we, you and me, are extremely flawed. <laughs> we have so much baggage. We are so good at making the wrong choices. We are so good at being selfish. We are so good at being lazy. We are so good at being the opposite of what you would think God would want to use to spread his good news. Here's what I would say. The church is very good, the church in general, is very good at looking like church. But we're not very good naturally at church. Do you see the difference? We're very good at looking like church, but we're not very good at being the church. <clears throat> People that once were far off and blind, he explains that, 
people that could not hear, people that are either indifferent or hostile, are now the very ones that God uses to call his other children to redemption. It's ridiculous. Romans 10, 14 to 17 says this. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Paul wrote this, by the way. How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God said, look, here's the way I'm going to call people. I'm going to take ridiculously flawed people transform them, and let them have the joy of being involved in the process of calling others. I just think that's crazy. By the way, this was a quote from Isaiah. This is actually Paul quoting from the Old Testament. It's brilliant, right? Because he uses the Old Testament to battle against those who are saying you still have to be Jewish to be a Christian. Isaiah 52, 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the concept that he was talking about in Romans chapter 10. He was talking about how beautiful are the feet of those who are sent. It's genius. God has decided to use flawed, redeemed humans like you, like me, to spread a message of grace. And if you think about it, it only makes sense because if he were going to spread the message of, well, you've got to be good enough, then he'd probably only use good people. Well, then he'd be out of luck because there's none of us. God didn't need to do this. He didn't need to use us. But for whatever reason, for our sake, for our joy, for our satisfaction, he does. They are what we've talked about in Ephesians, another book that Paul wrote. Good works prepared beforehand that we should trip over, that we should walk into. For by grace are you saved through faith. And even that, that faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works or else you'd brag. For we are his workmanship created in good works which he prepared beforehand that we trip over. Do you see how it all begins to tie together? God does the hard work in the gospel. Let me tell you, as a pastor, my first job in ministry was as a youth pastor, and then also I was the pastor of evangelism. In other words, making sure that our church was sharing the gospel with those who did not know it. And I just felt this, I didn't really want that part of the job, but I had to take it to get the other gig. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Okay, we'll let you be the youth pastor, but you also have to make sure that we're sharing the gospel with everybody. <sighs> Great. Well, I'll pretend like I like that part, because you're supposed to like that part, right? Because you're a pastor. Oh, you better love evangelism. Boy. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to work with the students, you know, because I coached football and basketball, and I loved looking at the kids. I'd been a youth. I just wanted to do that. And over here, I had to do this thing where I was making sure that everybody knew how to share the gospel. And I'm just being real with you. I hated that job. But then I realized... About two years into that job, I don't have to hate it anymore, and here's why. I began to realize God is sovereign in salvation. He does the hard work, 
And, you know, originally this doctrine of grace, this idea that God is sovereign in salvation, originally the doctrine of grace, that, that God saves us and we don't save ourselves, that God's sovereignty, that theology was meant to bring comfort. Don't worry, God's got you. But somehow human pride has turned it into this evil thing. Well, how can you say that man doesn't have a role in it? Well, because if man had a role, he'd always fail. I mean, the great example is Adam and Eve, the perfect man and woman, had everything they could or use. They walked and talked with God every day, and even they couldn't choose to stay with God. And we expect some of us are going to be able to? Think about that for a minute. Adam was the most brilliant man ever to live, and even he chose sin. But here's what happens. Here's how God does the, the hard work. He did it for Adam, and he does it for us. He arranges the occasion. When someone hears the gospel, it is, in fact, a divine appointment. It is not a random occurrence. It is not, wow, by chance, I just happened to hear the gospel and God. No, when you hear the gospel, it is by divine appointment. It's a sovereign God. There is no randomness with God. That's the first thing he does. The second thing that God does, he opens spiritually blind eyes. We've talked about that in our passage today, those who are blind. We can't see the extent of our need of redemption without God doing that. You hear the gospel at an appointed time, and at that appointed time, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see your need of redemption. And then you know what else he does? He gives you ears to hear. In other words, he gives you the ability to understand it intellectually, philosophically, and yes, we've discussed this in deep end a few times. Scientifically, there is a role scientifically that the gospel plays. It's pretty wild. Then there's also, he helps us understand it emotionally. That is all part of having ears that hear. Being able to finally grasp the concept that Christ died so that we would not have to. And you know what else he does? This is my favorite part. And I love watching when this happens in somebody's life. And I'm so thankful that God gives me the opportunity to see it. He softens our hard hearts. I love it when I see God finally break down someone's resistance. And it produces a heart. And I love this word because it really is, what, it really is explaining what the gospel is. He gives us a heart of capitulation. Fine, I give up on trying to be the best me I can be without you. I give up on the ability to try to please you without the work of Christ. I admit I will never be able to get there. Christ is my way to be reconnected to the Father. I give up. Some of you have experienced that moment of capitulation. And we all think of, you know, like physical things or tangible things as miraculous for example, when the Eagles win tonight, miraculous, <laughs> glorious, a moment of celebration. We think of miraculous things as something that we can see or feel or be amazed by because it's in the physical world. But this is actually the most miraculous thing. When God arranges an occasion, he opens spiritually blind eyes. He gives you the ability to hear it and understand it intellectually, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And then he softens your heart to the point of capitulation. That's the supernatural work of God. That miracle moment when a person who can't see, can't hear, 
or trust the gospel and Jesus now suddenly puts all his or her faith and trust and hope and value in Jesus. You overcome this natural inclination to not want to admit that you need redemption. And it's a miraculous confluence of supernatural intervention that brings about a glorious moment of reconciliation with the Father. Let me say that again. It's a miraculous confluence of supernatural intervention that brings about a glorious moment of reconciliation with the Father. It basically helps a person to be able to say, a few days ago, I didn't even think about God, and now Jesus is my everything. There are moments, these moments that we live for as Christians, not just in our own lives, but to witness it and see it in the lives of others. That's why it's so fun to be a part of the process. Not because we get credit for it, but we get to watch God do another miracle. And see, Paul builds this theology consistently in his other epistles, by the way. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 and 18, <clears throat> I do not seek to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, enlightenment, and of revelation, and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul says very clear there, I do not cease to give thanks for the moment that God enlightened you and showed you your need of a Savior. I loved that moment. I loved it, Ephesians, when that happened to you. It was the most exciting part of my life when I saw God do this miraculous thing of appointing you in an occasion, giving you eyes to see your need, ears to hear and understand, and made your heart capitulate. He says it in Philippians 2. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Honestly, guys, the miracle is that he even bothers to do that. He doesn't need us. He doesn't have to redeem us. But he does it anyway. And he does it in such a way that he allows us as the church to play a role in it and to feel the power of his glory enter into the lives of those who are in desperate need of transformation. That's the miracle that he even bothers. That's a lot of theology, isn't it? Let's go to the devotional part. Let me tell you what the effectiveness of the gospel does not depend on. It took me a while, by the way, as a pastor to realize how unimportant I was as a seminary graduate. How important, unimportant I was to the salvation process of God's chosen. There was a time when I thought, man, the world needs me. <laughs> Boy, the church needs me. They just don't know it yet and they don't pay me like it but they need me. <laughs> but there was a point where I realized my seminary level education means nothing when it comes to whether or not a soul will come to Christ. I feel like it's a waste of money sometimes. <laughs> it's not, but, but here, the effectiveness of the gospel does not depend on how saintly we are. Like somehow our effectiveness in sharing the gospel is based upon how good we are doing at the moment. Like we're on some sort of spiritual winning streak. I'm really on a roll. I'm praying more. I'm giving 11% instead of 10. Ridiculous. I'm coming to church every week. 
I stopped to help an old woman put a new tire on when she blew a tire out on the interstate. I'm on a roll spiritually. I'm listening to the Christian station. I haven't listened to Led Zeppelin in weeks. I am on fire. So now I can really be used by God. Wrong. God, I've said this many times. God never works because of you. Ever. He always works in spite of you. All the time. Even if you're at your highest level. He has to work around you. And through you, not because of you. You know the thing it doesn't depend on? How tenacious we are. Like the gospel's effectiveness depends on our tenacity and how often and how forceful we're willing to share it. Boy, if I don't share the gospel, there's going to be people who never hear it. God needs me. No, he does not. You know what else it doesn't depend on? How tactical and rehearsed we are. I remember when I first got into the ministry, there was a big thing out there called evangelism explosion. Now, I'm not ripping on it. You know, it's, it's knowledge, so it's good. But the idea behind it was this. We need to take our people and really train them to understand the details of the gospel step by step, have them develop a gospel presentation plan that they memorize so that at any moment they can share the gospel with somebody in an effective way and they will come to Jesus. I got news for you. God can use you without any training. What's this Jesus thing? Well, I don't know a lot, but I can tell you this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. All I know is I was blind and now I see. All I know is I didn't care and now Jesus is my everything. I can't give you all the details, but I know this. He died for me so that I might live. That's better than any training. You know what else it doesn't depend on? How innovative we are. How inventive we can be at adjusting the message to somehow make it palatable. Let me tell you something. The gospel is not dependent upon your creativity. The gospel is not dependent on your artistry. The gospel is not dependent upon your political correctness on the far left or the far right or in the middle. We think sometimes we must apply our creativity and knowledge and manipulate the message of the gospel so it can be relevant or so that it can fit our political or socioeconomic predispositions. Well, Jesus was a liberal. Jesus was a conservative. Jesus was a libertarian. No, Jesus was God and he was Savior. Because what happens when we depend on those things Here's what happens. Dependence on those things creates a few things. First of all, it creates misplaced confidence in our ability. Like we can win a heart for Jesus. Like we could somehow give the gift of faith to someone. Give me a, how arrogant is that? Well, I have the gift of evangelism. No, you don't. Evangelism is a gift from God to others. So it can produce misplaced confidence in our ability. It creates a lack of understanding that God is the one who saves, not a church, not a program. There's a friend of mine. Uh, he is an athletic director and he's a football coach. And he's like an ex-Navy uh, SEAL. This guy, Special Forces, he was awesome. Like, I love this guy. He's one of my best friends. And he, had, he was in charge of making sure all the athletic teams in this school had coaches. And one of his teams, his girls' basketball team, actually the coach was the father of one of the girls, and he happened to be a pastor of the biggest church in the town that where, he was, where he lived. I'm not going to tell you the name of the town. 
It was the biggest church in town, and this pastor was there, and this pastor was coaching like a madman. It looked a lot like me on the sidelines. It, you know, a, a lot of yelling, a lot of throwing things, you know, and, and uh, not, a, not, a good, uh, not a good example. And so my friend Chuck, is his name, he had to go to the coach and he said, hey, listen, you're not being a good leader. You know what he said to him? Who are you to tell me about leadership? This ex-Navy SEAL, my friend, you know. Who are you to tell me about leadership? Our church baptized 800 people last year. That's kind of sick, isn't it? It's a lack of understanding of who saves. It's God. You know what else it does? It creates timidity that can paralyze. When we realize that all those things above, you know, are, are, are how saintly we are, how tenacious, how tactical and rehearsed, how inventive, when we finally realize, I'm not actually good at any of those. I can't share with anyone. So what does this mean for us? The first thing I can tell you is, there is no reason for any of you, I don't care who you are, there's no reason for any of you to feel insufficient when it comes to gospel telling all of you are just as effective as me. Some of you even more so because you haven't been cor- as corrupted by religion like I have. There is no pressure to adjust the gospel. It's not your job to enhance it, to make it feel better for those that are hearing it. And you know what else? This would be the best part for you. There is no burden to manufacture results. The myth, the pressure that decisions for Christ mark success. I've shared this story before. I remember when I was first starting as a youth pastor, we went to this camp. It was a big camp in the summertime. A bunch of churches would come together. We went to this camp. And every morning, the people would get up and they would run through. We had 33 salvations, 23 rededications. That's, you know... uh, 40, uh, 56 decisions last night brings our week total to 230 decisions for Christ. That's a myth that that measures the success of the gospel. Like, like we can do the miraculous, because that's what it is when you measure by how successful you are. There's no commission schedule with gospel telling people. There's no commission that says, well, you have a 20% success rate. Good job. We aren't selling vacuums. The outcome isn't dependent upon you. Because I'll tell you, if the success of the gospel was dependent upon you or I, nobody would ever believe. Oh, we might get an emotional response. But it's not the gift of faith. See, our motive for gospel telling changes from getting decisions for Jesus to joining God in his 100% successful plan to save his chosen. I'll show you a verse, closing with this verse. This is the focal point of how I see the gospel. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's talking about the gospel. Talking about the message of redemption. Get this. Think about this. Every time the gospel is shared, whether it's rehearsed or on the spur of the moment, 
by somebody who knows a lot or knows a little, by somebody who's been saved for decades or a day. Every time the gospel is shared, it is 100% successful. As a matter of fact, I can tell you, when I share the gospel with somebody, don't get me wrong, I like it when people come to Jesus. It's exciting, but that's not my motivation. Are you mad at me now that I said that? My motivation is I get to make Heavenly Dad smile by telling other people what he did for me. It's not my job to make someone choose. I don't have the ability. That's about the sovereign gift of faith. But every time the word is shared, it would be successful. That should be the foundation of how we share the gospel. Don't mess with a good thing, church. We're never going to change. We might change, you know, some different things here and there. You know, uh, how we pass out the donuts. What flavor we get. We're getting ready to add another room upstairs, by the way, for our children's ministry to expand it because it's growing. You know, we might do stuff like that. We bring in new instruments every once in a while. And all those things are really cool. I love them. Don't get me wrong. But they don't enhance the gospel. The gospel enhances us. Dad, we're so thankful that the gospel is not dependent upon our creativity. It's not dependent upon our ability. It's dependent upon your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name.